Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. Okay, a bit of housekeeping before continuing with my conversation with Locke Kelly. As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm going to be introducing a few small changes in the structure of the podcast soon. I just want to give you ample warning. Until now, I've been recording long-form conversations with guests, and then I've tried to break up those conversations into a series of digestible mini-episodes. And while many of you have shared with me how much you appreciate the manageable length of these episodes, I do need to make a change in that production process for a few reasons. One is this. There are enough of you who have expressed the wish to have the conversation available in total. And that has had me considering this shift for quite some time. But the second reason relates to the shelter-in-place mandates that we're all facing. Like many of you, my ability to work and support myself has been significantly disruptive disrupted, if not completely evaporated. And in an effort to streamline the production end of running the podcast and thereby reduce my own production costs, I'll be continuing to release two episodes a month with one change. The first episode will be the long-form conversation many of you have been asking for, and this is similar to the content that you've been used to receiving. But the second episode, which arrives two weeks after the interview, will be a solo cast reflection where I try to summarize my guests' most salient takeaways and suggest how they can apply directly to your practice. So this will be what I'm thinking of as two-part programming. First, long-form, in-depth conversation with a great, interesting, knowledgeable guest. And this will be followed by a solo cast reflection from me. And this shift will take effect after the four-part series with today's guests, Locke Kelly. Another shift I've made in light of the COVID-19 pandemic is the access that you can have to my online courses and content. For your immediate support, we have steeply discounted our four online courses, and we're calling that the Sublime Quartet, which looks at the functional elements of yin yoga, yin meditation, Chinese medicine, and yang yoga. Individually, each of these courses go for $125, but we'll be offering these courses for the next several months at $49 each or for a super save bundle of $149 for the complete quartet. These courses, if some of you have asked about them, these are the in-depth preparatory courses that students complete prior to attending our live modules. They cover a lot of theory of the functional elements of yin yoga, yin meditation, Chinese medicine, or TCM, and yang yoga. And there will be a link for you in the show notes for this offer under the Sublime Quartet. Um, But given the financial strain we're all under, please hear me on this next offer. We don't want finances to be a limiting factor for anyone. If you are in financial distress and are unable to afford the fee for these courses, simply send us an email requesting access, and we'll be happy to extend these courses to you free of charge. The email for that is info at yinyogaschool.com. That's info at yinyogaschool.com. Okay, now for today's guest, Locke Kelly. Locke is an author, meditation teacher, psychotherapist, and founder of the Open Hearted Awareness Institute. His life work is about helping people access awakening as the next natural stage of their development. He offers in-person retreats, workshops, online videos, and audio courses. 
He served in the New York Insight Meditation Teachers Council and studied extensively with the Tibetan teacher Mingor Rinpoche. He was also invited to teach direct realization by the contemporary teacher Adyashanti. In this episode, Locke and I continue to explore the direct experience of shifting out of your small, thought-based identity into your already available, awareness-based being. Now, without further ado, I once again bring you Locke Kelly. Maybe to start out, I would say the style of teaching that you're offering is often positioned as an advanced practice. So you would do a whole bunch of, a meditator or a yogi or practitioner would do a whole bunch of gradual uh, directed practices, sort of uh, preliminary practices first, before shifting into this direct, direct awareness of awareness type practice. Um, and you seem to sort of throw caution to the wind a little bit there, and not, not in a disrespectful way, but to say that we can just jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of got a sense that there's a bit of a taboo against doing that. I kind of wanted to see if you could talk about that and then move into talking about what, how you might point someone into that, their own nature this way. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there are many traditions that are direct path traditions in all cultures, um, and the, but the gradual path has, is, tends to be the more conventional or, you know, the institutional, uh, formations because institutions can form around gradual. Therefore you have to join a monastery and, and, and go gradually, you know, within structure. So Ken Wilber talks about this a bit about moving from it to its, which you where you create an institution. And so those institutions and those traditions, um, you know, first point being, interestingly, they do acknowledge that the direct path is the advanced path, and that's where they're going. And when you get there, or when they allow you to taste it, or when they are willing to show it to you, um, then it's very similar to the direct path traditions, but you've spent, you know, 30 years or three lifetimes, you know, doing these other practices, which, you know, may be preparatory or not. Um, But the first teacher I met, a guy named Toko Ergen Rinpoche in Tibet, had done three three three-year retreats, was highly revered Tibetan teacher, but then he realized after the third retreat that his uncle had pointed out his true nature when he was 14 years old, and it was no different than it was after three retreats. So that gave me a sense like, all right, let's skip that three, three-year three retreat stuff. If he's saying that it was available to him, uh, let's see. And then that's been my experience. So um, because, um, you know, some of the preliminary practices are just growing up. So, in other words, some of the preliminary practices, if you join a monastery at, at eight, are going to school and learning basic skills and reading and writing and uh, that kind of thing. So, my feeling is that people are more likely to recognize, realize, and stabilize this awakening if they're generally mature people rather than having done any 
meditation. So those people who have done a lot of concentration practice, mindfulness, are not necessarily able to recognize this as easily as somebody who's lived a full life, is a kind-hearted person, is, you know, just has, you know, as, you know, what Wilbur would call having, you know, more lines and levels of development uh, being developed. And they can even be young and kind of developed um, in that way, just be kind of a, and that doesn't mean they didn't have trauma either. Mm-hmm. And that's another point uh, that I can go into later is that um, people with complex trauma are able to recognize this, their true nature immediately. And in fact, they need it yeah. <laughs> and it's it's what helps them. So, so this is the curious thing is that, well, if it is, if it is who we are and it is inherent, then why not give it a go and see if you you could then go back if you if you can't get it. So I'm just doing a little backwards. Right. Um, but it's um, my experience is that, you know, in terms of the glimpse, the glimpses, which is the main practice is small glimpses many times rather than long meditations is, you know, in an hour and a half, seven out of 10 people will report that they get a shift of consciousness into, you know, uh, a few seconds to a few minutes of this. Yeah, in in the book, you have at least one chapter that goes through a variety of different angles to glimpse (laughs) this 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 level of of one's awareness nature. Um, And you you kind of make a comment a few times that uh, there's sort of a personal idiosyncratic way that people will work with these. Some some glimpse practices work for some, some don't work mm-hmm. for other. Yeah. Um, what ones have you found particularly effective? What And what kind of personalities have you found have, other than a long career in meditation, doing directed right. meditation, what kinds of personality issues make it more difficult, do you think? Um, it is It is almost about learning style. And so it's not so much about, you know, one size fits all, but the general principle of how to uh, shift your awareness and people, some people are more kinesthetic, you know, body-based types. So you can start with more physical. Some people are, uh, visual, some people are auditory. And so just even those simple doorways. Well, uh, let's, let's, let's actually dive in on that because sure. there's a, there's a large part of this audience. that's a, that's deeply, um, uh, uh, part of a yoga practice yes they do a lot of yoga um so they've got the embodied awareness how would you compare and contrast say a directed approach to mindfulness to being with the body versus an effortless right way of being with the body that that reveals their their true nature within right so i mean having okay so i'll just kind of give two short examples of of how people can get relief by doing uh, shifting from what I call everyday mind, which is that small separate sense of self, to subtle body or subtle mind. So many people in yoga or physical, qigong, people do exercise. What you do is you move from that small separate sense of self in your head, and then if you just do something um, like stretching your body, uh, moving it in certain postures, or even just saying, Om, and feeling the vibration, you will drop out of that 
thought-based and be more in your subtle body. So it's, it's the halfway or the partway or the preliminary step um, of shifting into your body, but then you're still in the battery of your body. You still feel like you're contained. And, you know, an hour after the class, you're likely to pop back up to function from your small self being a little more calm, have a little more calm ego. And then the other way by meditating or by doing a mind, let's say a mindful body scan, you know, you know, bring your attention to your shoulder, bring your attention to your arm, let your elbow relax. You're doing it from your head. Most people will do it from their head. And in this more awareness-based, what you do is you literally feel like, oh, the premise is that awareness is intelligent uh, from a field of awareness. So you can unhook the awareness from the focuser or the thinker or the mindful witness and let it drop into your jaw and feel your jaw directly from your jaw mm-hmm. and then drop into your throat and feel your throat, the aliveness, the awareness, and the sensation. So the subject and object can then drop below your neck and literally feel your body from within your body. And then notice that it also can be aware outside of your body of the space in the room and aware from uh, equally outside and inside. So there's kind of a, a field of this greater ground of awareness that is aware of what's going on inside and what's going on outside directly. Um, And when I've had yoga teachers and ballerinas and people who are athletes just say, oh my God, that's the first time I've ever intentionally felt my body from within. Like I've been doing all these things, but I'm, I'm doing it from my head or from a detached mindful witness yeah so it's like there's a kind of a a witnessing ceo rattling around behind the eyes looking down upon the sensation from a distance and you're describing a descent of of awareness that connects to a direct felt sense immediate perception yeah and it's as if it, it it's not only the direct perception but the perceiver is in the same location that's what's the different thing Right, so it, the perceiver is literally in your thigh or your hand. Yeah, yeah. and, and it's simultaneously, ultimately it can start there, but it ultimately is kind of everywhere, nowhere, and here. And that's the, that's the next shift, is like, oh, it's also outside. And what happens when you do that is your default mode network of your brain and your task mode network balance. So you literally, uh, your brain shows <laughs> that you're able to be aware Instead of being distracted, looking outside, looking inside, looking outside, looking inside, which is the normal rhythm of your brain. For instance, when you try to watch your breath, your mind will wander. And why it's doing that is it's going into this rhythm of task mode, default mode. And so when you balance that through being aware of the spacious awareness that's equally inside and out, which you know, sounds esoteric when you hear it, but it literally doesn't take any longer to learn effortless mindfulness than it does deliberate mindfulness or to learn basic yoga. 
poses. So they're literally the same training if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, I want to pause you there on just the, on the on the on the neuroscience. We're okay. gonna, I want to come back to the, no. I do want to come back to the default mode network, which is the regions of the brain involved with self-referential thinking, thinking where the sense of self is generated. Uh, task positive network when you're engaged in a, a discrete task and externally focused. We'll come back to that and talk about how meditation affects that. The thing that I think myself and I think a lot of people that I know get tripped up on mm-hmm. is. That what you just talked about, which is shifting the awareness from like a felt embodied sense to this kind of amorphous, shapeless, hanging out in the space around you kind of thing, and and that's where if you could spend a little more time on talking me into the audience into that big big mind, that would be cool. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that in terms of again, you know, certain types of people, there are more kinesthetic types which probably are drawn to yoga um, so they may be more uh, have a doorway of, of inner doorway and maybe not be used to going out whereas other types I just say you know go inside and they're like oh it's too messy in there you know like I want to go out mm-hmm. and they can go into the spacious awareness more easily you know big sky mind or you know choiceless awareness kind of meditative so the the feeling is the unique premise of uh, this type of inquiry uh, meditation is that what what shifts is not you the meditator not you the doer not you the seeker or the small self literally the beginning is to invite your already awake awareness, which is identified and kind of the inherent uh, foundation of everything, to separate itself out. And, like, it makes no sense, but that's kind of the the curious thing, that people just do it, and then, like, what was that? How did I do that? Well, you didn't do it, but you did it, but not you. No, I'm talking to you, not you. So... (laughs) So once you get once, so it's like a it's like a feeling. It's like riding a bicycle. It's like, how do you explain to someone? All right, let me explain to you theoretically about balancing on a bicycle. Yeah. Okay. When you begin to fall to the right, lean to the left. You know, like that's great theory. Thank you. But is that really what it is? So when you literally have awareness, feel like it is identified with the thinker. And with the hearer, like right now, you could have some, whoever's listening could just feel like, okay, I'm hearing you, but where are you hearing from? And then kind of locate, where's the hearer? You know, and and then feel like awareness is inherent within that. What it's What is it like if awareness is invited to thank the hearer for all its hard work and ask it for some space? And then just simply open to the space in the room. And just let the awareness be aware of the space from the space, rather than from a attentional ability. And immediately, the chattering mind goes into the background. Well, see, and that's the piece. It's almost what you, the the chattering mind or the, the discursive yep. thinking mind. 
because of the tendency to identify as being the thinker of the thoughts, that very yes. deeply ingrained tendency people have, I think when, for at least for me, when I started working with self-inquiry practice after years of directed meditation, I'd ask a question, who am I, where am I, what am I, to whom is this arising, any of those questions, it would tie me in cog- like conceptual knots right. because I would start to think, try to think and answer, to look for the answer as a thought, when That's in right. fact, I think what I got from your, some of your teaching, and, and maybe you can speak about this, the whole goal or the whole point of the question yeah. is to, to drive a wedge between your identity with the, the process of, of, of being identified with thought, to drive a wedge in that, and it's that, that gap of clear yes. space of silence within which this right. larger field becomes palpable. Yes, that's way. right. Yes, so so that's the key is that, you know, I've kind of taken it a couple steps further to almost skip that um, that tendency or that bind of who am I, that you, when you ask the question, who am I, then you go to the thought-based identity to try to answer it, and then you're, you're definitely not going to get the experience because you're using the usual way of knowing, which is thought-based knowing, to try to get out of thought-based knowing. Right. So by having awareness, which is ultimately what I did is I kind of reverse engineered the process from awakened consciousness, and then I followed it back to feel, okay, how do I, how do I get re-identified? What happens? What's, what's happening? Oh, it's not the amount of thoughts. Oh, it's not the amount of feelings. They can be happening, but it's when awareness kind of gets on the train or contracts into a thought or a feeling or a sensation that it it then binds or creates a small self. So let me just reverse engineer that. Let me just have awareness open from that self and either drop within to find kind of this open-hearted space within, within the atoms, or open to the space outside the body and then come back. So either way, you're going to go in to go out to include everything, or you go out to come back. But what is moving, and and this is the first um, unique thing that I teach, is how do you unhook local awareness from the thinker or the manager or the meditator and have it know either your body directly from within or the space in the room and the sound moving through it directly from open mind. Mm -hmm. And that feeling is reported, you know, in different words for people, but whatever it is, scientifically, the brain responds in certain ways and the felt sense is different and the relief from the chattering mind and the relief from small self uh, is shifted. Okay, I'll pause the conversation there for today. And perhaps over the coming weeks, you can explore in your own meditation what it's like to drop the project of trying to do something specific in your meditation. Or in other words, to drop the project of trying to attain something in your meditation. Is it possible to relax the doer? Is it possible to relax the doer enough 
to glimpse, as Locke says, the inherent freedom and peace of awareness itself. For more on Locke Kelly's great teachings, please check out his website, www.lockkelly.org, and also his recent wonderful book, The Way of Effortless Mindfulness. Links for both of these are in the show notes. And until next time, I wish you a safe refuge in place. Take good care, and I'll see you in the next episode.